0: From National Public Radio, this is Living on Earth. I'm Pippin Ross. This week, the story of one young California surfer who turns her parents' garage into a laboratory. She monitors the local beach for pollution, and the results are startling.
1: And when I saw it, I mean, all of the squares were fluorescent, and that's how you read your results. You count the fluorescent squares. Usually it's just like three, but I mean 40 of them were fluorescent. I was almost shaking. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do?
0: Duh, save the day, of course. It's the environmental education of Margot Thomas. Also, more waves in the waters of the Klamath Basin and do-nothing night in Ridgewood, New Jersey, where all the children are above average.
2: Homework is almost good because I'm getting kind of (laughs) bored.
0: Those stories are just ahead on Living on Earth right after this. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Pippin Ross, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. Last spring, as Vice President Dick Cheney's task force was crafting the National Energy Plan, several environmental groups and the General Accounting Office sued to get access to documents related to the development of the plan. This month, under a federal court order, the Department of Energy released 11,000 documents to the Natural Resources Defense Council. That leaves out more than half of the known documents, and of those that were released, many pages were blacked out. Those pouring through the papers are convinced the Bush energy policy was shaped with disproportionate influence by industry groups and little representation from consumer or environmental groups. Joining me is Sharon Buccino, lead attorney for the NRDC on this case. Sharon, what stands out about these documents? Um, I guess what stands out the most is what's missing.
3: We got a lot of nothing, um, but uh, what we did get uh, does reveal some very uh, telling information
0: about who wrote the Bush energy plan. Hmm. Um, Can you give us some specific examples in which the energy industry appears to be playing a really significant role in the energy policy? Well, one thing we found
3: was an email that came from the American Petroleum Institute, and attached to that was a draft executive order that looks very much like uh, in structure and is very similar in impact to the presidential executive order that was issued by President Bush shortly after the task force, in fact, a day after the task force recommendations came out.
0: So it seems like it's almost verbatim?
3: It is identical in structure and impact, and there are some
0: sections that are are nearly verbatim. Mm -hmm. Now, the DOE insists that they included nearly half of the recommendations from your group, the NRDC, in the uh, energy plan. Is that accurate? Well, that's an outright lie.
3: It just cannot be supported by the facts. If you look at some of the specifics, for example... They take credit for adopting our recommendation that fuel economy standards for automobiles be increased. What the task force recommendation actually is, is that those standards be studied. And we have been studying those standards for a long time now without acting to significantly increase them.
0: Sharon, uh, let me just play devil's advocate here. You know, there's nothing that says the administration has to talk to everyone. Um, In fact, Ari Fleischer, the Bush administration spokesperson, was quoted in the Washington Post as saying, Newsflash, it's no surprise that the Secretary of Energy meets with energy-related groups. How do you respond to that?
3: Well, I think the issue here is that the public's business should be public. The administration is free to meet with whomever they want, but the public deserves to know who they met with, when they met with them, who bought and paid for the energy plan that is not only now being considered by Congress, but also being implemented on the ground by a variety of federal agencies.
0: So you feel that the energy-related groups got real audience and dialogue and that you guys got short shrift. That's right, and you can see that in the documents we got.
3: Um, it's quite telling. What, what there's a lot of in these documents are emails. There's a barrage of email going back and forth between industry representatives and government officials. A lot of times you see first names. Um, they're also asking about whether they, when they can set up their next lunch. Uh, and that is the kind of access that environmentalists just have not had.
0: Hmm.
3: Now, what's going to be your next step? We're still going through the thousands of pages we found. We have gone back to court to require that the energy department explain to the judge why they should not be held in contempt for their actions so far. And do you feel like you're under a real time restraint? Well, we've been working hard. We've been fighting for over 11 months now to get this information. There's a real urgency to the information because Congress is already acting on recommendations that the task force made. The numerous federal agencies, the Bureau of Land Management, for example, has an entire blueprint of 40 tasks they've identified to implement the Bush energy plan. So the plan's moving forward, and there's a real urgency to get this information out into the public. So we're working day and night to make that happen. Do you think Congress is going to adopt the plan? The House has already passed legislation, H.R. 4, that incorporates many of the task force recommendations. The Senate is now considering legislation. The bill that Senator Daschle introduced, started out, I think, as a pretty good bill. It has been watered down by amendments by the same industry representatives whose fingerprints are all over the task force
0: recommendations. Sharon Buccino is lead attorney for the NRDC. Thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you. Enjoyed the opportunity. Along the California-Oregon border, controversy continues over the waters of the Klamath Basin. Things came to a head during last year's drought when federal agencies cut off irrigation water to the area's farmers in order to help three species of endangered fish survive— The farmers protested for months. This year, there's enough water in the basin, thanks to an above-average snowfall. But the crisis remains. President Bush has set up a cabinet-level task force to help resolve the conflict. As Clay Scott reports, finding a solution won't be easy.
4: A lot of people have a lot at stake in the waters of the Klamath Basin. From the Klamath Indian tribes of the Upper Basin to the commercial fishermen 200 miles away along the Pacific coast, thousands of people in dozens of communities depend on the water for their livelihoods. But for many farmers here, the conflict still boils down to this. Their right to irrigation water versus the Endangered Species Act. Everywhere you go in the basin, hand-painted signs attack the ESA with slogans like Farmers, not fish, and Farmers are the real endangered species. One of the most vocal opponents of the ESA is farmer Steve Kandra. We know that we're a focal point of certain issues, a focal point of how the Endangered Species Act is going to be dealt with all over the West. Kandra is still angry at federal wildlife agencies who, he says, put fish over farmers. But with President Bush's recent creation of a Klamath task force, he says he's optimistic that the needs of farmers will finally be addressed. We finally have an administration that's engaged and is, is kind of moved us. We've become more visible, and we're looking at trying to get some resources uh, in the Klamath Basin to try to deal with some of these issues. The Klamath Task Force is headed by Interior Secretary Gail Norton. Earlier this year, she asked the National Academy of Sciences to prepare a report on the situation, but instead of diffusing the crisis, the Academy's report has fanned the flames again. Their interim study concluded that there was no substantial scientific foundation for irrigation cutbacks. They say the main problem was not the quantity of water, but the quality. Farmers say the report proves their water should never have been cut off, that irrigation is not the problem. But some environmentalists have called the Academy's findings oversimplified, inconclusive, and misleading. The low flows in the Klamath River, they say, raise water temperatures and expose salmon spawning beds. In the upper lake, low water levels coupled with agricultural runoff create massive algae blooms, which also kill fish. Bob Hunter of the environmental group Water Watch says the pollution in the basin can't be separated from low water levels, that both result from years of mismanagement. Whenever you have endangered species, it really means you have an environment in crisis. It means we've made so many changes and alterations to the natural habitat uh, and ecology of the basin that things are now so degraded that we're losing species. Two of the species at the heart of the controversy are the short-nosed and the lost river sucker. Both fish have great cultural and spiritual significance to the Klamath tribes. Until recently, the suckers were also important economically. But the fish numbers declined so much that the tribes stopped fishing for them in 1986, before they were listed as endangered. Don Gentry from the Tribal Department of Natural Resources showed me where the suckers once came up the Sprague River by the thousands to spawn. Every spring, this is where they would start catching the fish. You know, all through the river, you can see the shallow spots, and they built fish weirs or places where you have these old, old uh, fish weirs where people actually stacked rocks on the natural uh, ledges and in, in uh, rocks and in the river. Gentry says he's hopeful that habitat can be restored and that the fish will return. But water management here cannot be reduced to a mathematical equation, he says. It has to be looked at as a whole, starting in the upper reaches of the watershed where years of intensive logging have weakened the ecosystem. The forest management that we've had in the past has changed the structure of the forest, so the forests no longer capture and hold snow and, and release snow in the form of uh, runoff, as they did historically, so the whole uh, hydrograph uh, of the basin has changed. Now the Klamath tribes might get a chance to show that they are better stewards of the watershed than the Forest Service has been. In a surprising announcement a few weeks ago, Gail Norton said she will start discussions with the tribes on the possible return of nearly 700,000 acres of former reservation land. The move, she said, would be part of an overall strategy to develop a balanced solution for the basin. Meanwhile, a bill in Congress could provide $175 million to help resolve the Klamath crisis. But even if the bill passes, it's not clear how that money would be spent. Secretary Norton has pledged to give what she calls certainty and predictability to irrigated agriculture in the area. Environmental groups say the future of both farmers and fish will be in jeopardy without a long-range plan for reducing demand on the basin's water. For Living on Earth, I'm Clay Scott in the Klamath Basin.
0: Coming up in California, city people and farm folk now have one thing in common crummy air quality. The reason why the state's rural regions are becoming polluted is just ahead. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey.
5: Heart patients who supplement their medicine with alternative treatments after hospitalization may be experiencing some undesired side effects. Researchers at the University of Michigan surveyed 145 people who'd suffered heart attacks or severe angina. They found that 34 of the patients were taking herbs and other supplements to help heal. Trouble is, some of these supplements can thin the blood. And these patients were already taking prescription blood thinners such as Coumadin. Researchers worried that the combination of the prescription drugs with the supplements could make the patient's blood too thin, and thin blood can put patients at risk for excessive and uncontrollable bleeding and cerebral hemorrhaging. The list of natural anticoagulants the heart patients were taking includes ginkgo biloba, ginseng, garlic, vitamin E, fish oil, and coenzyme Q10. Most of the patients say their doctors were aware they were taking herbs or supplements, but the patients weren't concerned about interactions. Researchers, however, say they'll be conducting a larger study on this issue and will look at the incidence of minor bleeding problems when patients combine conventional and alternative treatments. That's this week's health update. I'm Diane Toomey.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. back to living on earth. I'm Pippin Ross. It's not every day that a bet between friends becomes an international contest, but that's exactly what happened in a pub in a small town in northeast England when two men challenged each other to a foot race. This being coal country, the catch is the runners had to haul a sack of coal across the finish line. The year was 1963, and the event became known as the World Coal Carrying Championship. Every Easter Monday, the village of Gawthorpe, England, hosts up to 60 men and women who vie for the title of king and queen of the coal humpers. Their race course follows an uphill path from a pub on the edge of the village to the center of town, 1,100 yards away. The men carry sacks weighed down with 110 pounds of coal, while the women shoulder 45-pound bags. The town's local mining pits are all closed now, so the two and a half tons of coal needed for the race has to be imported from nearby pits still operating. The donated coal is returned at the end of the race. Each year, a crowd of about 3,000 turns out to see if the Guinness World Records will be broken. The time to beat for men is 4 minutes and 6 seconds, 5 minutes and 5 seconds for women. Winners get the equivalent of about 450 U.S. dollars in cash and a trophy. At the end of the day, the winners, losers, and well-wishers gather at the Beehive Inn to down a few pints and collect or pay up on their bets. And for this week... That's the Living on Earth Almanac. The Bush administration is getting set to finalize a rule that environmental groups warn would give mining companies approval to destroy streams in coal country— At issue is the material that's left over from mountaintop mining. That's the process in which the tops of hills are blasted off to uncover coal underneath. The residue from these blasts is dumped into nearby valleys. And studies by the Environmental Protection Agency show that more than 500 miles of streams have already been filled in in Appalachia. Joining me to talk about the administration's rule change is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent, Anna Solomon Greenbaum. Anna, what's at stake here?
6: Well, Pippin, you might want to get out your dictionary for this one. It's all about definitions, specifically about how you define something called fill. Uh, As it's written now, the Clean Water Act defines fill as material meant for construction, for filling up water bodies when things like parking lots and shopping malls get built. In this case, we're talking about the dirt and rocks and other stuff that gets blown off the top of the mountain during a mountaintop removal mining operation and then pushed into the valleys and streams. Now, some people, including some federal judges, define this material as waste. And under the Clean Water Act, waste can't be dumped in the streams. The administration's proposed rule, in effect, would change the definition of fill to include waste and so it would make these valley fills legal. You know,
0: we've been hearing about these valley fills for years now, but it turns out then that technically they're not legal.
6: Well, that's what some citizens and environmental groups argue. They say the government's been violating the Clean Water Act for decades by granting permits for these valley fills. Right now, there's a Kentucky group that's suing to block a permit the Army Corps of Engineers gave a mining company last year. It was for 27 new valley fills that would cover over about six miles of streams. Jim Hecker is an attorney with trial lawyers for public justice. He's representing the Kentucky group, and he had this to say about the proposed rule change.
7: Our argument in opposition to that change is that the Clean Water Act was never designed, never intended to allow the disposal of waste in streams. So if the court changes its rule to allow the dumping of waste in streams, they're changing the law to conform to current practice rather than
0: changing current practice to conform to the law. Anna, explain to me exactly
6: what happens to these streams when there's a valley fill.
0: Does it affect water
6: quality? When all this material that's blown off the top gets pushed into the valleys, the whole area just becomes sort of one-level field. So it's not really a question of whether the practice harms the stream's water quality. It's a question of whether there are any streams left, period. There was a federal judge in 1999 who ruled quite strongly on this issue. He was a very conservative Republican judge, Charles Hayden, and he agreed with the Citizens Group, saying, yes, these valley fills could not be permitted under the Clean Water Act. In his opinion, he wrote under a valley fill, the water quality of the stream becomes zero. Because there is no stream, there is no water quality. Uh, his ruling eventually was overturned on a technicality, but it was enough to get the coal industry really worked up. Here's Ben Green. He's chairman for the West Virginia Coal Association.
7: Well, it would have been devastating. You couldn't have opened a mine. You couldn't have built a road. You couldn't have had a shopping center. It, it When you ban the excess uh, materials, disposals from any hollows, ravines, or valleys in West Virginia, uh, you have shut down our basic uh, activities.
6: So it was in part this pressure from the mining industry and from some very powerful West Virginia lawmakers that prompted the Clinton administration to get involved and propose this rule change in the first place. But the Clinton administration never
0: finalized that rule change. So
6: now the Bush administration is going ahead with it? Well, that's right. But there's a big difference between what the Bush administration wants and what the Clinton folks had on the table. Former Clinton administration officials tell me they were working on putting a broader set of environmental protections in place so that the rule change wouldn't become a kind of free-for-all license for the mining industry to fill streams anywhere they wanted. The Bush administration, on the other hand, is pursuing the narrow definition of the rule change without any additional protections. Critics say that will weaken the Clean Water Act by merging the definitions between what's waste, which is harmful. And what is Phil, which is more benign. So, Anna, now what? Well, we could see a ruling in the Kentucky case any day now. And same with the Bush administration. They say they'll come out with their final rule in April. Once that happens, I think we're going to see environmental groups move pretty quickly to bring the whole issue back to court.
0: Living on Earth's Washington correspondent, Anna Solomon Greenbaum. Thanks, Anna. You're welcome, Pippin. California's Central Valley is a fertile basin more than 300 miles long and filled with acre after acre of nut trees, vineyards, orchards, and cotton fields. Highways dissect the valley, but rural life is still very much alive there. So it's not exactly the kind of place you'd expect to find a lot of smog. But as Tamara Keith reports, the air in the Central Valley is so polluted, it actually rivals Los Angeles. And many people say... It's
8: affecting their health. Standing on an overpass on the edge of sprawling Fresno, Kevin Hall, a Sierra Club volunteer, surveys the skies. It's 8.30 in the morning and already a brownish-grey haze covers the valley.
9: Well, if you just do a, a 360, you can see it all around you. You can't see it immediately in front of you. You have to be looking through a great enough distance to see that it's there. And that's the particulate matter, you know, what's visible.
8: Half an hour later, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, located just 20 miles to the east, are no longer visible. Depending on which pollutant you count, California's Central Valley now ranks either second or fourth worst in the nation. In order to comply with the Clean Air Act, the region needs to reduce smog by about a third. The ingredients of the valley's polluted soup come from oil refineries, food packing houses, farms and dairies. But the big villain is vehicles big rigs, cars, and tractors. And in certain parts of the valley, on some days, as much as a quarter of the region's pollution comes from cars and factories miles north in the San Francisco Bay Area. Coastal breezes sweep the smog over the mountains into the Central Valley. Michael Kleeman is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Davis.
9: I would visualize it as sort of a bathtub with the air just sort of sloshing around and cooking in the sun. That traps the pollutants close to the ground. Uh, We then are exposed to very high pollutant concentrations as they cook in the the sun, basically.
8: Respiratory therapist Kevin Hamilton sees the effects of that sun-baked pollution every day, and it's turned him into one of the region's most vocal air quality activists. He specializes in asthma, a disease that now affects nearly 10 percent of the valley's population. That figure is about double the national average. His family moved up to the valley from Los Angeles in 1986. None of them had asthma when they lived in LA. But now two daughters and his wife all have the disease. He says others shouldn't take the risk. Right now,
4: I would tell them, you know, don't bring your children here until we get this problem squared away. That's a terrible thing to say,
8: but it's how I feel. It's that bad. A recent study by the University of Southern California found the first causal link between air pollution and asthma. Registered nurse Leonora Pantoja listens to patient Lena Rodriguez's lungs with a stethoscope at a family practice clinic in Fresno. Rodriguez has had asthma since 1987. It was shortly after she started work as a janitor in a plant that makes jams and juices that she began having trouble. Oh, se siente como que no puede uno respirar bien apretado.
0: Oh, it feels like you can't breathe, really tight. It's awful. All the time I feel like I'm suffocating with the asthma.
8: The community medical centers in Fresno have had to hire several Spanish-speaking asthma educators like nurse Leonora Pantoja. She says her patients who work in agriculture are always surrounded by potential triggers. Whether it's in a factory, enclosed area, whether it's out in the fields, um, whether it's
3: uh, walking around... um, uh, fresno itself just it's it just
8: becomes such a hazard for them just to breathe agriculture is critical to the valley economy and most agricultural operations are exempt from clean air rules under california law which means tractors diesel pumps and dairies don't have to get pollution permits but it's not clear just how much pollution is coming from agriculture Manuel Cunha is a Fresno County orange grower and is president of the Nisei Farmers League. He says for the last three years, farmers have been replacing old engines and farm equipment with newer, less polluting ones.
7: In the valley so far, we've done 2,100 engines. The largest number of voluntary engines in the United States is here in the San Joaquin Valley, a voluntary program. So the farmers are stepping to the plate.
8: But Cunha says despite their efforts, farmers seem to be getting blamed for all of the valley's air problems. And he says that just isn't accurate.
7: The farmers aren't the only one producing the emissions. All of the public who drive their cars, turn on their fireplaces, turn on their barbecues, all of that adds to the pile. But the environmentalists are making it like the farmers have killed everybody in this state.
8: Cunha is fighting to keep the exemption for agriculture. That exemption has been raising more and more eyebrows as the region wakes up to its air quality problems. Since last July, local environmental and community groups have filed three air quality lawsuits against the Environmental Protection Agency, one of them related to the ag exemption. Bruce Nillis is an attorney with Earth Justice, an environmental legal organization which is heading up the suits.
10: When we received the call from the the folks in Fresno and started looking at the problems in, in the San Joaquin Valley, It seems simply incomprehensible that an area of 25,000 square miles with a relatively low population of only 3 million people could really have air pollution problems that were were as bad as L.A.
8: And the EPA's Jack Broadbent admits that until recently, the valley wasn't a priority.
7: We have focused much of our attention in the past in the Los Angeles region, the Phoenix area, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, It has not received as much attention as it is receiving now. But that clearly has changed.
8: Facing a threat of litigation, the Environmental Protection Agency has changed the Valley's ozone rating from serious to severe. And local officials are thinking about asking the EPA to downgrade the region again to extreme, a rating currently only held by Los Angeles. That would give Valley officials an extra five years to comply with federal clean air mandates before they risk fines or even losing federal highway funds. No one believes the air will be clean by 2005, the current deadline. For now, Valley residents are coping with the polluted air as best they can. Nine-year-old asthmatic Robbie Baker knocks down the last standing pins and bowls a spare in a recent round at a bowling league practice. He joined the league this year after his asthma forced him to quit playing soccer.
3: My asthma starts flaring up every time I run or something. And it really feels here because it feels like I'm going to get sick. That's what it feels like right now sometimes.
8: Now most of Robbie's sports are played indoors. His grandmother, Loretta, has three grandchildren with the disease and says it makes her angry.
6: It hurts me and it, it's frustrating because I think it's something we have some control over. And I don't say it's 100% air quality but it certainly contributes to these children having asthma.
8: For Living on Earth, I'm Tamara Keith in Fresno, California. You're listening to
0: NPR's Living on Earth. The town of Ridgewood, New Jersey recently gave their kids a night off. Parents and organizers from the Ridgewood Counseling Service decided their kids' after school schedules are so overbooked they had to pencil in some downtime. No easy task, it took seven months to finally designate March 26th as an official night off. Joining me now is Claire Serto. She's an eighth grader at Benjamin Franklin Middle School in Ridgewood. Hi, Claire. Hi. So, Claire, March 26th fell on a Tuesday. What would you normally do on a Tuesday night?
2: Well, Tuesday afternoon I have rehearsal, usually. And that gets, I'll probably get home around 4, 4.30.
0: Rehearsal for? The school play. Uh-huh.
2: The music band. And then I babysit from 5 to 7, and I have CCD at 7.30 to 8.30. That's like Sunday school.
0: What about homework?
2: I always get it done, because I can do it later, after 8.30. And I eat dinner in between babysitting and CCD, and I do work at school, too. So it's not that bad. Do you
0: feel like you're too busy?
2: Um, sometimes, especially on weekends. Like, this spring I'm playing lacrosse and soccer, so I've got soccer games on Sundays, and those are usually pretty long. And I've got lacrosse games on Saturday. And then there's homework that I have to do.
0: Whoa, you are wearing me out, girlfriend. (laughs) I can handle it. So what did you end up doing on your night off?
2: Well, I relaxed for a little while, and we painted our Easter eggs, and we ordered pizza. I just hung out.
0: So you relax for a little while? What was that, five
2: minutes? (laughs) No, I watched TV and I played on the computer.
0: Not exactly social activities.
2: No, because at night on school nights and everything, you can't do much because you can't stay out late.
0: So that probably made it easier that you couldn't hang out with your friends.
2: Yeah, that made it more family-prone, I guess. And
0: the next day in school, did everybody talk about it and say, oh, that was boring or that was great? The
2: teachers talked about it, but I don't the kids didn't really, it wasn't a big deal.
0: Now, did you learn anything from taking a night off?
2: I did learn that homework is almost good because I was getting kind of (laughs) bored.
0: Wait a minute, what?
2: Well, homework, I I hate homework, but I was getting kind of bored because I had really nothing to do.
0: So you were bored having the night off?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't think I would be, but it was fun. Sort of. Yeah.
0: Claire Cerdo is an eighth grader at the Benjamin Franklin Middle School in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Claire, thanks for talking with me today, and good luck with all your activities, and try to relax. Thanks. I'll
2: try.
5: Relax,
7: enjoy yourself.
0: It's only a glorious game. This fruit trees
11: growing in an
0: open... Just ahead, how raising a barn can raise consciousness about light pollution. First, this environmental business note from Jennifer Chu.
10: Weather can be a fickle force, and businesses can gain or lose millions on nature's whim. But now there's a way you may be able to profit from a rainy day. ZipSpeed is the name of a weather risk management company based in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's set to launch the world's first financially traded weather index, or nature's version of the stock exchange. Companies will be able to hedge their bets against a weather index called Nordics. Nordics is based on two daily measures, temperature and precipitation. Weather patterns for the past 30 years determine the averages. And companies can place their money on whether the temperature or precipitation will be above or below normal for a given day. For example, if a theme park is anticipating a rainy weekend, it can put money on the weather index for above-normal precipitation. If the sky is poor, the park can take its winnings to the bank or stay in the game to collect on another rainy day. Zip Speed representatives say industries can start betting on the Nordics in a few months. That's this week's Business Note. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening
0: to Living on Earth. Living on Earth. I'm Pippin Ross. Coming up, surf, sand, and science in California's Laguna Beach. But first, in our heavily urbanized world, we tend to equate bright lights with safety. What we forget, says commentator Tom Springer, is too much artificial light can blur the distinction between night and day.
9: One of the things I love most about living in the country is the darkness of the night sky. That's why I never put a yard light outside my farmhouse. I didn't want man-made illumination to interfere with the panorama of stars and planets overhead. Then last year, on a cold winter night, I was jarred awake by a light of terrible brilliance. My old barn was on fire. Within minutes, only the charred timber frame remained, stark and black amid a sea of flame. The fire marshal said the cause was arson, and no suspects were ever found. With insurance money, I've hired a crew of Amish carpenters to build a new wooden barn. But as it nears completion, I'm faced with a dilemma. On one hand, I'd like to keep this barn secure, and bright lights are supposed to scare away unwanted visitors, both animal and human. Yet I am unwilling to sacrifice my starry sky to the tyranny of a petty arsonist. Seeking a solution, I did some research and found out that darkness is a valuable resource for more than just stargazing. I learned that when humans get too much light during sleeping hours, they become groggy, confused, and depressed. In one study, people who slept in a room bathed by the glow of a street light were more prone to hormone-related cancers. And much to my dismay, even the little green nightlight that I recently bought from my daughter's room can cause problems. The experts say children younger than two, who sleep with a nightlight on, are more likely to become near-sighted before they reach adulthood. But at least humans can pull down the window shade to escape light pollution, Imagine what it's like if you're a bird that relies on the stars and moon to navigate. Each year, tens of thousands of them die when they crash into buildings and radio towers obscured by light pollution. The same fate awaits juvenile sea turtles. Once they emerge from their nests along the beach, the little hatchlings are fatally attracted to streetlights and floodlit parking lots. Light pollution is far worse today than it was a few decades ago. On average, a modern single-family home uses 40% more kilowatt-hours of lighting than in 1970. Yet much of this costly illumination never hits its intended target. Up to one-third of all outdoor lighting shines upwards and sideways, and does little more than bathe the sky in a wasteful display of electricity. As for my barn, an electrician friend suggested I use gooseneck fixtures with circular shields to aim the light downward, the kind used by gas stations during the 1940s and 50s. He also recommends motion detectors, which turn the lights on only when there is an intruder present. I'll never understand why someone would burn down a beautiful old barn. But I do know that what we see in the evening sky, whether it's twinkling stars or the orange glare of suburbia, is a reflection of how we treat the world. And we shouldn't allow the darkness that lies within a few human hearts to overcome what's good about the night.
0: (laughs) Commentator Tom Springer lives in Three Rivers, Michigan, and comes to us via the Great Lakes Radio Consortium. And now, the story of a young scientist in the making. Margot Thomas lives with her family in a place most people would feel lucky just to visit on vacation. Her home overlooks the Pacific Ocean in Laguna Beach, California. Every Wednesday at the break of dawn, the 17-year-old sun-bleached blonde rolls up her jeans and walks barefoot down 225 steep steps to the beach. It's a ritual that shaped and recently changed her life. As Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet explains, Margot has joined a wave of surfers who are helping make the quality of ocean water an issue in Southern California.
11: The sun is just rising as Margot Thomas kneels into a wave and drags a sterile bag through the surf.
1: So I just scooped the ocean water into our sample bag at 9th Street, also known as a thousand steps beach.
11: Thanks to Margo, 40 other teenagers are doing this same thing right now, gathering samples up and down the seven-mile length of this town. It started like this. One morning, Margo was out skimboarding, riding her board into the waves, flipping around and riding back.
1: And I had been skimboarding since 7 o'clock in the morning. The lifeguard came down around 9 o'clock, and then all of a sudden he started enforcing the regulation that half the beach was... Safe, and the other half was unsafe by a stake that was in the sand, so I was standing there like watching the water go back and forth i didn 't understand how one side of the beach it was that side that was contaminated, and this side could be safe.
11: It turned out on one side fecal bacterial levels had closed the beach, but on the other side, the count was lower, so it was open. That was still in margot 's mind a year later when an activist from the Surf Rider Foundation, an environmental group well known around here, visited her biology class. He explained that volunteers could test their own water. Soon, Margot had turned her parents' garage into a lab. She was by herself the first time her results came up hot. And
1: when I saw it, I mean, all of the squares were fluorescent, and that's how you read your results. You count the fluorescent squares. Usually it's just like three, but I mean 40 of them were fluorescent. I was almost shaking. I was like, oh my gosh, what, is, what am I going to do? I was scared that people had been swimming in this super contaminated water. Luckily, when I woke up the next day and went down to the beach, the county had found out it was really high too, so the beach was closed.
11: Orange County does more testing than most places, but it doesn't have the resources to test all the county's beaches. There are more than 30 in the town of Laguna alone. Soon, Margot was testing 10 of them, and it was quickly becoming too much work. So she made a sign-up sheet and organized the first high school chapter of the International Surf Rider Foundation. It soon became the most popular club on campus. So
1: the first thing you do is you want to get a clean container from here.
11: Lunch times now, Margot finds herself teaching basic scientific method to other seniors, juniors, and sophomores at Laguna Beach High.
1: You need help? Yeah. Okay. that's fine. Just um, go stand to the side and I'll help you. Okay.
11: Margot and her high school surf rider club now know something the public here has gradually been learning, that the waves, yearned after by legions of tourists and heavily used by locals, are often unsafe for play. Several kids here, most of them surfers, say they joined this club because they weren't getting enough information about the water, and it's where they spend a lot of time. Jennifer Haley.
8: People don't know how bad the water is sometimes, and three days after it rains, people are supposed to know automatically that the water levels are really high, so you shouldn't swim, and none of us even knew that, and we've lived by the beach our whole lives. I
11: always thought it was just one day. I
8: know. I thought it was one day after it
11: Over at the Orange County Health Agency... Monica Mazur says the county is doing all it can to tell the public which beaches should be avoided and when.
3: Now, it's a little bit difficult when you think of it to post signs along about 142 miles of beaches
11: along the county, and people know that they should stay out of the water after rainstorms. You're saying after a rainstorm, it's quite likely that you would need to post an advisory on every beach. Exactly, exactly, because there is runoff that you know, impacts virtually every beach along the coast. Every storm drain,
3: every street end, um, every creek, river, and stream you know, ultimately ends up at the ocean.
11: So it's all the beaches. On any random winter day, you can also dial the Orange County Health Agency and hear a message like this one.
0: Good morning, this is Mike Tennessee with the
7: Orange County Environmental Health Division. Until further notice, in San Clemente, at North Beach, the ocean water area, 150 feet up coast and 150 feet down coast of the restroom and concession building, is closed to swimming and surfing due to a sewage spill. Bacterial levels in ocean recreational waters exceed standards at the following locations.
11: Bacterial levels on Southern California beaches in the winter of 2000 exceeded standards 58% of the time, according to a regional research project.
7: The water quality after rain in Southern California is equivalent to sewage.
11: Dr. Gordon Lebed squeezes a few minutes between patients in his family practice at Kaiser Permanente in East L.A.
7: It's quite simple. You get sick, and surfers get sick dramatically because their faces go underwater all the time. Waters enter their sinuses up through their nose, and they frequently get sinus infections, and polluted water gets in their ears, and they get ear infections, and if they wind swallowing some of this stuff, they'll get gastroenteritis. And It's rare to see people seriously ill, but their illness is just the same.
11: Many people have understood for some years that the water is contaminated here after a rain. Sewage treatment plants along the ocean front can overflow, and winter rains mean heavy runoff that flushes all kinds of pollutants into creeks and drains that stop right at the beach. But until the late 90s, this was mostly seen as a winter problem, one that only affected surfers, since most people don't swim in winter because the air's too cold. Dr. LeBeds feels their concerns were ignored.
7: Public health agencies would say that just say that nobody goes in the ocean after a rain except surfers meaning you know surfers are some kind of morons or something and quite frankly i'm 55 years old and i'm a professor of medicine i'm a solid citizen i go surfing every day we've been marginalized yeah by the public health agencies
11: But surfers are growing less lonely in their lament. More people are paying attention. Five years ago, California passed the strongest beach testing program in the country. Similar legislation followed in other states and then nationally. Then three years ago, contamination closed a famous beach for the entire summer season.
0: Huntington Beach, California, a a two-and-a-half-mile stretch of summer, reopened today, just in time for Labor Day weekend after a two-month ban on swimming. Huntington Beach, the summer
11: of 1999, the fabled surf city, visited by more than 3 million swimmers a year, closed for the whole summer. The source of the contamination was a mystery. Again, Dr. Lebed's.
7: The beach businesses were just livid. They lost tens of thousands and perhaps millions of dollars. And it got the attention of the politicians. Almost a watershed moment for us beach water quality activists, because it really put us on the map.
11: With beach closures becoming an economic issue, the search was on for a culprit. Scientists now had more money for research. Reporters took a deeper look. The Orange County Register mined public records and discovered there's a sewage spill every 34 hours in their county. Ryan Dwight, a researcher at the University of California at Irvine and a surfer, found there was more interest in his area of study, summer runoff.
2: You live on a, a street with 20 different houses, say. That's Saturday. Four four people go out, water their lawn. Some of that runs down in the creek. Uh, two, two, two people wash their car. Some soap stuff comes down. Two people in the, on your block went and walked their dog this morning. One didn't pick up the, the dog mess. Three people in your neighborhood have cats. Nobody picks up after their cats. And one person changes the oil in their car and doesn't know what to do with it, and he dumps that. And that's just one city block. Now, you know, and that happens every block, every day, for thousands and thousands of miles. So that everything goes into a storm drain, which then goes into a flood channel, which then gets focused into a river.
11: And the rivers flow to the beach. Some residents suspect there's still something else fouling Southern California beaches that some of the millions of gallons of partially treated sewage piped offshore several miles into the ocean may be washing back. The Environmental Protection Agency allows 42 districts in the United States to avoid giving their sewage full secondary treatment. The largest waiver is in Orange County, the second largest in San Diego. New studies indicate some of this partially treated sewage in Orange County could be moving back towards shore. But Stanley Grant, an engineering professor at UC Irvine, says the studies are not conclusive.
4: If you really despise the sanitation district and the fact that they are not doing full secondary treatment, then your take on their data is that, yes, you can see the plume moving towards shore. If you think that they're doing a fine job, then you point out, well, it looks like the plume stops at about two miles out, something like that, and it doesn't appear to, to move any further. The science of it is very, very tricky, though.
11: Despite the problems, most Southern California beaches are safe most of the time in summer when most people use them. On one hand, population is growing. There are more and more people flushing toilets and washing cars. But cities and counties have also dramatically improved their sewage treatment. Some say water quality is actually staying the same. Activists with the Surfrider Foundation are down at the beach this day quizzing surfers about why they're traipsing right past this morning's red paper signs that say warning ocean water may cause illness. Bacteria levels exceed health standards.
9: Did you notice these signs on your way down this morning? I uh, didn't
4: see until <laughs> I got out.
9: What did they what did they
4: make of the bank? I hope I didn't swallow too much water.
2: That's stupid. I'll be <laughs> I'll be bummed two days from now when I'm sick and Wishing I
10: wouldn't have done it. So, it's a, there's a warning. I figure it's not too bad. If it's really bad, they'll shut down
5: the beach.
11: One magazine dubbed those who ignore the warnings toxic surfers. But Margot Thomas's high school surf rider group believes people need to know just how bad the water is, not with the general warning posted today, but with specific bacterial counts, like the ones on their posters, sometimes seven, eight, or ten times the legal standard. With surprise, Margot notes even non-surfers are looking at them.
1: I even saw parents looking at it before allowing their kids to go to the water, and that made me really proud.
11: Margo believes with more information, public demand for water cleanup will go from a quiet to a loud roar. Her commitment is long term. She was planning to study aerospace engineering. Now she says she's chosen environmental policy. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Orange County.
0: This week, that's Living on Earth. But before we go... It's dinner time on the Itong Plains in Kenya, and a group of very large, water-loving mammals emerge from the river Mara to feed. Chris Watson was there to record the chatter that the Maasai people call... The Laughing Hippo. <laughs> Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. Our production staff includes Cynthia Graber, Maggie Villiger, Jessica Penny, and Gernot Wagner, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, and Mylisa Muniz. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. We had help this week from Rachel Gershik and Jesse Fenn. Allison Dean composed our themes, environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Steve Kerwood is the executive producer of Living on Earth. I'm Pippin Ross. Thanks for listening.
11: Mm. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the Educational Foundation of America for coverage of energy and climate change, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, the Oak Foundation supporting coverage of marine issues, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation supporting efforts to better understand environmental change. Mm.
2: This is NPR,
11: National Public Radio.